This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Are you fascinated by UFOs, the occult, strange history, and more? On October 14th through the 16th at SIR Nashville, the Strange Realities Conference 2022 will take place. Three days of exploring the mysteries of the supernatural, history, UFOs, the occult, and much, much more. Featuring presentations by Steve Berg, Micah Hanks, John Tinney, Adam Gorightly, Tim Banal, Christopher Ernst, Samantha Engel, Recluse, Nathan Isaac, Melody Blackthorn, Dr. Future, Soraya Askath, Timothy Ritter, Aaron Gullius, Delaney Bowers, Olaf Phillips, and David Metcalf. With workshops by Kiki Dombrowski, Ren Collier, and Michael Hughes. Come join us in Nashville or online. Tickets are available at strangerealitiesconference.com. Find out what everyone is talking about. everyone and welcome back to Conspiranormal or as it is right now the Strange Realities Conference 2022 preview show because that's part all four. we've been doing this is yeah this is part four part five will be next week and then that's it we go to the conference but tonight we've got three more speakers that are going to be speaking at this conference and uh, we're going to talk about what they're going to present, and we can talk about some other things as well. So, first of all, we have Delaney Bowers is here. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Delaney. Hi, Adam. Hi, everyone. <laughs> and we have we have Olaf Phillips. Hi, everybody. O- Olaf has a friend right next to him. You might hear uh, at a certain point. So. Yes, yeah, a pain. And uh, la- last but definitely not least, Mr. Micah Hanks. <laughs> well, I'm a first timer here, and uh, again, uh, it's good to see you guys, Aaron, and uh, and uh, what's your name, Sergio, the host. <laughs> right? 
I'm sorry, I didn't have my glasses on. I'm sorry. It's Adam, Adam, and 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 Silver Surfer. Okay. Well, good yeah, to see you guys. Good to meet you guys. Yeah. Fine. It's, it's, I've heard it's so nice much to, about you. It's nice to meet you too. Um, it's 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 been a, it's been a long time coming to to have you on Conspiranormal. Uh, even though it's been like we probably had you on. 50 times back in the past <laughs> well, let's just be honest you, I were, was the, the first, you yes. were the you were the second guest after dr oh. future so uh we're going to talk about what you guys are going to be presenting and we'll talk about some other things as well we can start with you delaney you've got a pretty exciting one you were telling me all about it uh a few days ago oh, and yeah. this one uh this one's interesting i'm i'm really curious about this yeah um I guess I'm excited for it too. I don't know. I, it's it's sort of a, a self-serving um, project that I'm doing. Maybe all sort of magic is at this point. Um, but I'm in that process of creating an earthworm servitor <laughs> um, to help me find buried treasure with my metal detector. So I know that there's a longstanding um, sort of folkloric tradition between high strangeness and the hunt for buried treasure. So um, those are some threads that I'll be exploring and then sort of looking into the historical precedent for um, servitors and egregores and tulpas and sigils and sort of the thought form continuum that exists and how I um, essentially have sort of inserted myself in um, sort of like the larger context of these things. So um, did a lot of research today, maybe in preparation for this conversation tonight, but um, yeah, just sort of like blowing my mind. I, I was really worried that I wouldn't have enough content um, to fill an hour's worth of uh, presentation time, but no, like I like even just dipping my toe into it uh, this morning and this afternoon, I was blown away um, by how many different sort of um, paths that I could go down and uh, just really excited to see where it takes me. Yeah, it's like it's like sometimes you look at like a when you do a show or you're doing like a presentation. I can remember when I did my presentation with about the uh the Warren stuff. I was like, how am I gonna feel like an hour? And it was the exact same thing. I was like, there's just so much information that you can you can easily do it. And you think, well, oh man, like an hour is just so long. And it's just like, it isn't, it just goes by so quick. Right. And um, I, my question to you, uh, I, I'm not familiar with the term servitor. What, what, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, so it's really just uh, an idea that's been around for uh, millennia, essentially, but really uh, came into popularity with the creation of uh, chaos magic or sort of that um, meta model that's used for um, magic praxis. And one of the things that I thought that was really helpful was discovering this idea of a thought form continuum. And if you don't mind, I'll explain that to you right now. Um, but it goes from sigil to servitor to egregore um, to God form, right? So it's that continuum that's right there. So if we are to think of sigils, they are sort of like unintelligent symbols where we are um, placing our desires and our intentions onto them, right? They're like the lowest of the low. They're pretty dumb. Um, but when we move on to servitors, they um, are complexes that have developed um, 
from essentially from sigils, they can, um, they do have a connection with those, but um, they are entities which uh, some magicians have sort of like cordoned off from their own psyche. And so when we give them a name, when we give them a physical form, they start to act independently of the magician, right? And so magicians sort of give them tasks to complete. The task that I gave my servitor was to um, help me with like historical research, as well as the physical process of exploring and digging in the landscape, right? So when multiple people sort of um, rally behind a servitor, it becomes an egregore, right? Like a larger thought form that more people can buy into. And then finally, um, a God form is just like a souped up servitor on steroids, right? Like you become your own deity and there's no stopping you. So it's just um, one step above a sigil that I'm working with. And to call it into power, I like to think of it sort of as like uh, the hot and ready version of magical practice, right? Like it doesn't require um, like a long time to build a relationship with a pre-existing entity. I just get to create it from my own obsession, um, give it a task. And when I'm done with that task, I get to destroy it. So I don't know. It gives me like a little power <laughs> or maybe a lot of power. Um, but essentially, um, Austin Osman Spare, right? Have you guys come across him? Yes, of course. All uh, shaking right. heads. Wonderful. Um, just really thought of servitors as, uh, again, sort of like a sectioning off of the magician's own psyche, that obsession to create something um, and really just allows you to work within your own mind, right? To give intention to something and see it through to the end. Is that helpful? (laughs) Are you going to be like documenting your, what you're Mm -hmm. starting to do? Yeah. And so uh, on the Equinox, that's, uh, you know, just earlier, or I guess last week, Um, that was the night that I created my servitor and sort of the ritual practice that goes along with that. And, um, she's wild, right? Like maybe it's just my own self in earthworm form. (laughs) Um, but already even just like, and I feed her, right. Um, and I have to give her words of affirmation and really all along, it's probably just doing all of these things to myself, right? Like I'm encouraging myself to go out and find these things. It's not some giant worm. Um, but it really helps to think of it in that sense. She was really helpful today in um, letting me come across some really cool uh, journal articles about servitors and like the history of um, buried treasure lore. And um, some names popped up and some uh, patterns that I found. Uh, able to put those into play too. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited to get to talk about this with people who don't look at me like I'm crazy when I talk about something like that. It's a, it's an, it's a relief. Oh yeah. Oh, no. is, is definitely an uh, environment to get as weird as you want to be. Love it. Love it. Yeah. I, I just, Egregore, of course, I was familiar with that term. I just, in sigils, of course, but uh, Servitor mm-hmm. was not something I was familiar with. Mm-hmm. So that, that's very interesting, the progression there. I never have even thought about that. Yeah. Uh, being a, a folklore specialist as you are, um, is the, 
existence of like like the treasure hunting lore is that like a is is that something that you've come across a lot in kind of like the folklore kind of studies um not yet um but i was going through the uh journal of american folklore jaf which is part of the american folklore society that's their um publication that they put out and i was able to come across a few articles today that really got into the nitty-gritty of um, sort of the history of buried treasure lore. And um, one of the threads that I just like allowed myself to follow was Joseph Smith, right? Um, as a mm-hmm. treasure hunter and in, in sort of how that spiraled out of control <laughs> um, into creating, you know, um, the Church of the Latter-day Saints and how that just has a, a history that's rooted in, in folk magic and vernacular practice as well. Uh, or I just thought it was really interesting. Um, well, Peepstone Joe. Yeah, Peepstone Joe. I love it. <laughs> so it feels like it would be a nice tattoo somewhere on the body. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Um, but one of the things when it comes to like contemporary urban legends, because essentially that's what uh, buried treasure lore is, it's just really nice to see that there is a recurring structure in that um, most of these narratives follow um, just like the treasure is hidden. So that's like the first part. And then a search is made and that's where all of the adventure comes into play. And um, there's sort of sometimes a a third part, right? Whether or not it's like successful. So like sometimes they find it, sometimes they don't. Statistically, a majority of these tales, like the treasure is never found. Um, But another part that I thought was really cool is that like there are always two means by which a treasure seeker is thwarted and the first is um sort of like a physical barrier which is a storm or there's like faulty maps and um the second way could be supernatural so there's like a ghost that's haunting the area that doesn't allow the treasure seeker to sort of finish that task or the the gold is like touched by some demons, right? And that like follows uh, the treasure seekers. So I don't know, again, like like I said, this is just sort of one day of research and I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, there's just so many different uh, threads to follow. So I think, I mean, I hope people will be interested no, that's <laughs> uh, great. when you give this presentation. Um, I'm really looking forward to giving it. I think treasure hunting is kind of a, it's kind of cordoned off from a lot of the, other subcultures of this paranormal stuff and you can find so much in common with all these narratives how they crisscross well i know um tim renner has sort of spoken about it a little bit about the connection between um treasure seeking and high strangeness and also coming across uh, the interview that you did with what terry carter um, yeah, I, I was about to ask you if you'd heard that. Yeah. <laughs> so I haven't listened to that episode yet, but I did make it um, in my notebook. So I'm. Did you like? Was that sort of like a prominent theme in his, his conversation with you? Like, we, really yeah. weird stuff happens when I go try to find this. We pulled that out. Yes. Of yeah. Yes. It's great. I love it. It, it. it. And and if you look at his like YouTube channel. I mean, he's got that all over the place. Yeah. There was a, there was like this one old guy that he was interviewing Sergio that he was just like telling all kinds of just like ghost stories and yeah. and, cri- you ghosts, and you I think giants, I think you get Bigfoot, you get UFOs, yeah, right. you get secret societies and conspiracies and great. It's, it's all in there. Oh, yeah, no. there was. 
Yeah, I mean, just like his, I mean, and his site is, I mean, his YouTube channel is pretty interesting for all that as well. Uh, I, I, I look at it and I was telling you this Delaney that, um, it's kind of got that same element that like a, you know, the search for the Holy grail has like the idea of like, well, you may not ever like looking for the treasure is just a device to find, you know, some enlightenment within yourself. It's not the journey, it's the destination, or the other way around. As a folklorist, you'd really should check out his channel. That's another thing about that treasure hunting subculture is that it really is that old school, like, person to person, based on storytelling. Like, it's, I think this stuff will really interest you. And a lot of the old timers are, are passing, so it's like, it's really a rush to get some of these stories, but they're not it's not like a lot of this other stuff where people are like willing to share information. A lot of people guard all this stuff to the grave because it's, it's their clues and their research to find this treasure. And like, it's, it's pretty wild. Do you think I could charm it out of them? Like, is that going to work? Probably. All right. All right. Love it. Didn't they just do something? Some, they had like, he was telling us, Sergio, that they did something in Salt Lake City. Like they have some kind of thing every year. It's, it's more rural. I'm not sure exactly guys. what it is. But yeah, it's like a treasure hunter's rendezvous in Utah. Yeah. Um, it's around where the Lost Roads mine is supposed to be. And there's some more Mormon stuff. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating subculture. I really got interested in it. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I told you, Delaney, that Sergio would be really... Yes, I'm this. very excited to bring some treasure hunting to, to Strange yeah. Realms 2022. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, you're uh, welcome. <laughs> can we actually bury some treasure somewhere on the grounds and 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 have people look for it? Are I should have set this up as a as a workshop. You just have yeah. people. Are like, you going to douse? Are you going to start treasure? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to all of it. Yeah, just really load it up that 60 minutes. See what all I can get done. Oh, wow. So there's going to be some demonstration involved. Who's to say at this point, right? Gotcha. I still have a few weeks. Yeah. If, yeah. if I can make a suggestion, you might look yeah. into something called powwow. And they, they oh, also yeah, do. Absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah they, they do a lot of that. Is treasure hunting a huge thing in powwow? No, but dowsing and, and trying to uh, invoke... Uh, folk spirits to find things is i mean a lot of it is about healing and that kind of thing but there's definitely an element yeah. you know where these what what they call water witches the dowsers to find things do you think they pull some of that like the the <clears throat> joseph smith and do you think they pull some from that tradition a little bit like that that treasure that old kind of american treasure hunting like that Joseph Smith was involved in, in the 19th century. Do you think they pull from some of those powwow and folk magic traditions? I mean, one of the things that I came across today was just sort of like this linear progression um, from sort of like these ancient tales um, that sort of made their way into European folk tales that eventually uh, made their way to North American uh, narratives. And so you have this like long list, this very storied list of um, famous treasure hunters who are also sort of like they went um, by the title of adepts, right? Like A-D-E-P-T-S. Um, and 
they had connections with ceremonial magic practices, which sort of introduced a religious element into it as well. Um, so yeah, I can totally understand how like water dousing and powwow would just be sort of like a natural connection to be made in looking for buried treasure. Very interesting. Hmm. All the folk magic stuff is extremely uh, fascinating to me. Right. I, I didn't, didn't, yeah, I didn't realize that there would be a connection to that. That's pretty cool. And so just sort of one final thing. I mean, I yeah. have Micah and Olaf here. I'm sure they're chomping at the bit uh, to talk about themselves. Don't let me no stop problem. you. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I really, if you are to think of folk life, right, as a hierarchy where folklore is sort of under the, the realm of folk life, uh, if you think of life as encompassing sort of all creative practice, um, you have folklore that's under that, which is sort of like the verbal and oral traditions that you have. Um, the genres of folklore are usually oral and verbal, customary and material. And one of the things that I really like about that is that um, these sort of magic practices are encompassing of all of those genres. And so just thinking about like the ritual that I did the other night, um, I like spoke things out loud. There were certain materials that I used, candles. There was like a certain thing that I chose to wear. And so in like gestures that I did and like signs that I made. And it's just, I don't know, like vernacular religious practices naturally just sort of fall under all of these genres. And it's really cool to be able to see that uh, in practice and play and then be able to sort of like uh, recognize those and, and highlight them and share them with other people. And it's what I'm coming across too in sort of like these buried treasure tales. I mean, it all just like fits together very easily. And so, yeah. It does. Aaron, Aaron Gullius is really chomping at the bit to ask you about your uh, wrestling study. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm here for it. independent professional wrestling, baby. You you guys know the um, the the interesting synchronicity, or I guess, or coincidence. I don't. I haven't told you guys this, but uh, Delaney actually for that study that she did on uh, amateur pro wrestlers, I guess you could call them Delaney. Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Uh, she actually interviewed a coworker of mine. Yeah. Which was crazy. Caden Slade, <laughs> is that right? Caden Sade, yeah, Caden that's his Sade. stage name. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you I can find it. I do know, yes, yes, yes. You got to keep the gimmick going. That's how it works. Kayfabe all the way. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, which, I mean, is a real interesting interesting thing to do. Like, you kind of like <clears throat> folkloric and <clears throat> anthropological study all at the same time. Yeah. So. And I mean, especially at like Western Kentucky University, which is where I um, did my graduate degree, it's like the Department of Folk Studies and Anthropology. So the two are inherently linked for all eternity. Just a nice um, crossover between the two. Yeah. You've got some wrestling fans and like uh, Tim Banal and um, Aaron are both big wrestling fans. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, that's a project that I'm pretty proud of. I mean, it is housed at the Library of Congress, um, but it's also just like a focus nice. on Appalachian wrestlers, right? Um, sort of central Appalachian people who work really hard. And if you want to talk about like 
ritual. I mean, oh my Jesus Christ. And all of sort of like the drama and pageantry and lore that goes into creating characters and maintaining this facade. I mean, that's, you know, that's a perfect place to start. He doesn't work with me anymore, but I actually just saw him two days ago. So if I see him again, I'm going to let him know that Caden Sade is in the Library of Congress. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, let's go to you um, and what you're going to be talking about at the at the conference. Sure. So uh, recently, I've been doing quite a bit of research into the Black Lodge uh, with Greenfield. We're working on a book, The Secrets of the Black Lodge. And one of the things that I've noticed as I've moved through this is that there <clears throat> not only are there a lot of, I would say, Black Lodge workings in and around the space program, the secret space program, you know, UAPs, UFOs, and whatever, but um, <clears throat> there's a lot of symbolism in it, uh, in their patches and in the names and in the times. And so I was going to try to do a little bit of an introduction into what the Black Lodge is and then kind of discuss how the Black Lodge manifests inside of the space program and uh, inside the secret space program and UFOs and UAPs. Because, you know, other people have talked about it in the past, but they, they primarily focus on the the occultism part of it. You know, it's like you have a patch and you see a wizard. And, Ooh, that's magic. But it's not really like that. There are even, you know, in the patches and, and in the names, there are very significant things. So I wanted to kind of try to get into that. So hopefully when you're done with my hour, uh, you'll be, you'll kind of have a, have kind of a primer on the Black Lodge um, and you'll get some fun examples of, of uh, ufologists that were members of the Black Lodge or <laughs> scientists who were members of the Black Lodge and how it affected the space program. That's scary. Yeah. So we're going we're going secret space program here a little bit again. A little bit, you know. I'm going to be in there, you know, because you you know you look at some of these scientists and and uh, and ufologists. I mean, a lot of times, when, you know, I hate the name UAP, but I guess that's what's in vogue. But a lot of times, when you see a UAP or a UFO or whatever, hang on, I gotta turn. On. Um, when you see a, you know, information about a UAP or UFO, you know, there's this instant cut over to, well, that might be part of the secret space program. And th there are some very interesting things that, that I think got a bit glossed over recently in the UAP world, but, you know, I, I'm not going to try to get into that too much. I just, I kind of want to focus on the effects on these programs because you'd be surprised how many scientists and, and uh, programs are influenced by it. What uh, what got glossed over? I mean, I guess if you're not going to talk about it at the conference, we could talk a little bit about that. <laughs> oh, the UAP thing. So yeah. when when they did the congressional um, when they did the congressional uh, presentation and they were being you know interviewed by Congress, one of the things that the uh, the guy from um, the national oh uh, I forget the guy's name now, but he he was the head of the of the um, national intelligence. Uh, service he he specifically mentioned that a lot of times well number one he said we know what they are and we know what they're capable of and i, I don't think that's a lie but one of the things he said is that they picked up a large amount of rf transmissions when they would see these things so you know obviously if you have something weird flying over 
flying over a destroyer or an aircraft carrier, battle group, or whatever, you know, they have a, a significant amount of uh, sig- signals intelligence capability. And so they apparently, when these things were flying around, they were intercepting RF traffic, radio traffic coming in and out of that. And the RF could manifest as a radio transmission. You know, you could be sending it commands over a radio frequency. Uh, it could be iridium, like satellite. You know, RF demonstrates a lot of things, but what it also demonstrates that it's probably not aliens. Because aliens, you know, why would they be using radio frequencies that we can decipher? And they, <clears throat> I think that they were able to and um, obviously record, but decipher what some of that those RF transmissions were. I mean, most likely they're, um, they're control C2 systems, command and control. So they're telling it what to do, where to go, what to watch for, for the drone or the UAP. Um, but, it, but yeah, so there, there were a number of little gotchas like that where they were saying, you know, um, we've intercepted these kinds of radio transmissions. We've, you know, we saw these kinds of movements. We know what these things are. We're just not going to tell you. So I definitely don't think there were UFOs. What's up with these uh, these patches that I've been seeing? Like I've kind of been, you know, I, I'll be honest the with you. I've been kind of, I've, yeah, I've kind of been ignoring some of the the UAP stuff lately. <laughs> lately. Yeah, it gets it gets a little annoying after a while. It's it's yeah, it's a bit pedestrian depending on who you're talking to. Now, one of one of the other guests on this panel, this uh, the stuff that I've heard him talk about is fascinating. But you know, in general, I think it's it's been kind of taken over by a, a group of people that I don't I don't think are scientifically minded. I mean I've said that for a long time. So the patches right. you're asking about the patches? Yeah, I've just I've just seen these just kind of like on Twitter, people, you know, so is mm-hmm. it Space Force kind of stuff or well I mean there's a little bit of everything, right? So there's a guy that kind of pioneered this whole thing. His name is Trevor Paglin. And he's technically a geographer, but he he likes to think of himself as an experimental artist. And what he did is he came across these things and the challenge coins and some of the other morale paraphernalia that that kind of goes along with some of these programs. And he started filing Freedom of Information Act requests and finding public references to them. So, you know, if you go get his book, I I think it's called uh, If I Told You I Would Have to Destroy You which is a def- definitely an amazing book to get. Um, you know, he kind of, he kind of gets into, into them, but those, the patches are not classified. The programs are classified. So one thing I can assure you is that when I deal with the patches, I am uninterested in, uh, in the program itself. I'm only interested in the iconography. So I won't be getting into the programs, just the iconography and what it represents. So yeah. but, funny little story. My, they have my symbols. aunt lives out there. And uh, she's in specialty advertising and merchandising. And I was showing her that book and she was like, Hey, I made this one. So they actually, yeah. Oh yeah. There, there was a, there was a guy, he, uh, I forget which book he's in, but there was a guy, he actually went to like a, like a goodwill. He goes down to, to the, that area in Mojave and he, uh, he goes to the goodwills. And one day he went into the Goodwill and he found this jacket, like a fighter jacket, like a pilot's jacket, covered with that stuff. Cool. And I got apparently, a, I got that, 
I think I sent you. I got that B two uh, test pilot jacket in Palm Springs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten. They're already jamming the system. That's what's going on. They're they're they're, yeah, they're jamming it all off. No, no. You're really Olaf, into Olaf, the Olaf, CIA Airlines Space Force. Yep. They don't want you to know that. I'm, I'm waving them off. Go away. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, good. No, I'm good now. <laughs> it got a little noisy for a minute. I was like, no, no, no noise. So you think but, that this iconography um, reflects like actual occult beliefs of people participating in the stuff? I do. I do. And one of the things that, you know, uh, we were talking earlier about sigils and, you know, one of the things about a sigil is that when you, when you invoke a sigil, if you walk around with the sigil on your forehead, right, you're spreading the power of the sigil to where the sigil is to empower the sigil and, and to pass that to other people, good or bad. I mean, that's why we see a lot of analysis of like uh, corporate logos that have, you know, some believe have sigils embedded within them. Because these things can affect you. Like, you know, I just, I went to Highlung on Saturday and the whole, the whole concert, it's not really a concert, it's, it's a ritual. And, and so, you know, the whole ritual, you know, whole concert, right? You're going through this, this working, you know, it's like Hellier, you know, you watch Hellier and you become part of the process. You become part of the working, right? So I think that when, when they invoke these things and put them, print them on the patches or, you know, in the paraphernalia, it empowers the sigil itself. Hmm. So no, no sigils on your forehead. Okay. Nope. Well, I mean, well, you, that do, sounds real interesting. You, you do do that sometimes, right? My, my ancestors would, would put the Viking compass on their foreheads when they were lost at sea, hoping to get home. So, I mean, we, you do do things like that, but it's, um, you got to be careful what you're doing. Yeah, some of those some of those patches that Sergio did show did show me that book, and that some of those are pretty yeah. crazy. Oh like yeah, they, they've really embraced the 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 alien concepts and designs mm-hmm. and the grays. Yeah, and all the, that stuff. The B two bomber one is the 509th bomb wing, you know, or 509th bomb squadron, which is obviously dates back to Roswell. Only they they now fly B two bombers instead of B or B seventeens, and so you know there's all kinds of it, it tastes like chicken is on the bottom of it. It has a trident, which has its own representation. But you see a lot of a lot of symbols, and you see you know I, I don't worry so much about like if I see somebody that puts a wizard on it, you know within that world certain animals represent certain things. Um, which are pretty well known, but I'm more interested in the arcane little bits of it where you see like an Omega symbol. Okay. Well, what, what's that doing there? What is that? That satellite, right? Doomsday device. <laughs> oh, don't get me started about that. <laughs> my we favorite can, is the one with we just can talk question, about, my favorite is the one with just a question oh, the mark question. and NF. Oh, no, wait. NOFB, none, none of your fucking business. Fucking business, yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, the, the other interesting thing that happened recently in, in that kind of a world was uh, Maverick, which is probably one of the worst movies I've seen in a long time. Um, it's, based, 
It's basically Top Gun reshot with an older Tom Cruise and a whole new cast. But, but Pure spectacle. The, I enjoyed it. But the first, the first what, fifteen minutes of it, you know, that plane was designed by Lockheed. They built the model for it. Uh, I even heard somewhere they rendered the animation. They designed the spacesuits. They designed the patches. They designed the cockpit. And they said that while it is not real, because some people were fingering it as an SR-72, while it's not real, it's ca- they said very clearly that its capabilities are real. And, you know, they even put the little skunk on, like, the throttle. and yeah. But it's interesting because there is iconography on the aircraft. Of course, there's a whole there's a whole thing now where you know people believe that Tom Cruise died, his character died in the beginning of the movie, and that the the whole rest of the movie is actually like his 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 death fantasy as the plane is falling out of the sky on fire. Well, because you can't you can't eject from an airplane at Mach ten. It just doesn't work that way, not even for Tom Cruise. It's a fast way for him to meet his his savior. <clears throat> are you are you talking about Elrond Hubbard? So I I don't want to get sued, so I'm not going to talk about those guys in Hemet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably a good thing because SIR is right next to us to 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 one of those. So oh, I'm aware. Right well, Liberty Center. Like, oh, I'm aware. That's right. You've already been there, so yeah. Yeah, when when all you Micah guys were talking, two, he's been over there. Yeah, when 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 all you guys were like inside talking, I was sitting out there watching to see who was going in and out. Did you see anybody? Because I've never seen anybody walking in and out of that place. It just no, looks I saw empty. a couple cars. I think their okay. mission to country music hasn't been working as well as they thought it might. <laughs> Probably not. I, but we drove, is... I drove by there yesterday. That place is huge, man. Oh, the celebrity it's a big center? place. It is yeah. a very large place. It's what, like five levels or something? Like four, it four like or five it is, levels. Yeah. yeah. We'll get a free but, uh, personality test as advertised. As advertised. Well, at least it's not the process church. <laughs> I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> they well, they're an offshoot. They were an offshoot of Scientology, right? I mean, they, that's true. The yeah, process yeah. church for the, yeah, the process church, they did the same kind of stuff. They were actually excommunicated from Scientology. I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's super bad or just super, super bad. But they were, they were kicked out of it. The Grimson was kicked out of Scientology. I believe yeah. they were too much for Scientology. Yeah, <laughs> too much brain brainwashing. But right. there, there's something, there's something else that I, I discovered in the process of, of researching the book that I'll, I'll tell you guys some other time. Okay. okay. Awesome. It won't be in. It will not be in the book. But I'll, I'll. Uh, I'm just uh, showing you the the depths of which uh, the research has been done. So It'll this is something point. that won't be here or in the presentation, but you're just going to tell us in private. Yes. Are we going to have to like put our phone in YFB? Uh, we're going to do it in a Faraday cage, and I'm going to have a cell phone scrambler. Okay. Good. No. Right. No. No. <laughs> but it has to do with Parsons. It has to do with Parsons. Oh, okay. Though. And Parsons will be in the presentation. You, you can't, you can't have, you can't have uh, occult stuff and uh, UFOs and rockets and not have Parsons. So mm-hmm. he'll make a surprise appearance. Right. 
Of course. Well, I guess you'll get, half, you'll get half the you'll get half the theory <laughs> that I have. You guys will get the whole theory, but in the presentation I'll do that. I'll do half the theory. How about that? Okay. Good. Good. See why you guys need to come to the fourth annual Strange Realities Conference in person. <laughs> well, you know, Sophia and I are the top of the pyramid anyway. Yes. So, you know, we're gonna get the hey, we're gonna get the that's full a, that's another trope on those patches, the the uh the seeing eye on the pyramid. You'll right. see that a lot. Yeah. Yep. It's in our little uh, insignia, but it's in our it's on our, uh, our graphic in the back. Well, I can't Surfing see it. There's too many, so too many people covering too it. Too many symbols going. Yeah, on. the strange reality <laughs> symbol is covering it. Actually, if you can see it. No, uh, I've seen it. All right. Well, that's great. Um, really looking forward to that, Olaf. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it should be and, trippy. Yeah, awesome. yeah. You uh, actually um, at at your bike we talk about his Sergio, if you want to talk about yours we, we should do that because you're going to be presenting too okay <laughs> well you got to give the speech. you're going to give the presentation anyway so all right well top secret okay all right well nyfb for now <laughs> mr hanks now I'm real curious to see. I think I think we were talking about you were going to give a whole thing about leprechauns. I think that's what we were talking about. That's the uh, premise, yeah. Yeah, good. Leprechauns and trees. So, what are you going to be presenting about at uh, Strange Realities Conference? Leprechauns. Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, I know you guys think I'm kidding, but <clears throat> I've been doing tremendous. A massive research into the leprechaun phenomenon, and uh, I think I'm about to strike the main nerve on this. You know, blow this whole thing wide open. Did so, you find the gold? <laughs> I don't know. I uh, actually, you know, on the subject though of um, of treasure hunting, I mean, it's it's crazy because this is actually a very good uh, combination of speakers because I think Olav is like the perfect interface between Delaney and I, although. Um, you, you might say with my archaeological interest, I mean, some might liken that to treasure hunting, although, again, I would, you know, view archaeological pursuits as being a science. I, I am not a collector of archaeological artifacts, um, but, but I've found them uh, in the line of, you know, conducting archaeological field research and everything. Uh, and I, th I would say that the process in some ways is very similar to even down to some of the more esoteric you know, aspects of that to the treasure hunting thing. Um, to briefly come back to Delaney's uh, discussion, though, you know, I've actually uh, worked as a uh, narrator of a number of audiobooks, and I've narrated a lot of books about everything from treasure hunting to the occult. So uh, that's uh, those are sort of side interests of mine. And, um, you know, a lot of the kind of work I do when it comes to reporting on aerospace and defense and things like that, I mean, it's a very much more materialistic kind of um area of interest but i've always said this adam i think i've told you this many times in our conversations over the years on long drives and trips and rock concerts and all kinds of stuff i mean i feel like there are different partitions on my hard drive you know and there's the the scientific materialistic kind of one but then there's the very open-minded esoteric one and then there's the very spiritual one you know and i think it's it's important to have different dimensions of your your character uh, that you engage. So again, I have that interest in, you know, the occult and folklore, especially you know, folk magic. Uh, that's another fascinating subject that I've narrated books on. Um, 
Olaf and I had a really great conversation recently about uh, some of the overlap between the things that have been happening, you know, in the recent uh, developments with UAP. And yet I think he and I both agree as much as we keep up with all of that, that uh, a lot of the modern dialogue on this is, you know, the, the new kids on the block in the very truest sense, people who are, you know, who have no little to no real genuine interest in UAP, its history, the possibilities of what it may represent, but they're tasked with trying to get to the bottom of a, a genuine phenomenon, an enigma. And, uh, and they happen to also have some of the best toys in terms of sensory equipment capable of detecting these phenomena. And so they're like, well, we've got some really good data. Uh, so whose is it? China, Russia, right? And one of the problems that, Again, I know Olaf and I just lament constantly you know, watching these congressional hearings and we see a congressman, you know, uh, bring up an incident that happened in the 1960s at Malmstrom Air Force Base. And I'll just point out, I mean, again, Malmstrom Air Force Base, Minot Air Force Base, Wurtsmith Air Force Base, right? I mean, Effie Warren Air Force Offit. Base. Right. Offit. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are so many, and, and actually, again, let, let's not limit it to, yeah, just, you know, northern tier U.S. bases. Um, there's still a few others actually uh, stateside that we could run down the list with. But the thing is, is that there are also instances where there are things that have happened uh, outside the United States that seem to also indicate common threads that we can identify in UAP studies, uh, not merely related to their apparent prevalence in terms of interest in having an interest in, in UA, uh, in, uh, in nuclear sites. So we're watching these congressional hearings and, uh, you know, Congressman Gallagher brings this up and, uh, Ronald Moultrie and Scott Bray have no knowledge of what he's talking about. They don't have a knowledge that extends any further back in history than 2004. And, you know, although I can understand in terms of national security that it's like, okay, great. You know, blue book is ancient history. We want to deal with the best data that we've collected in terms of technological, representations of what this phenomena is, who may be operating it, what it's capable of, and what the defense uh, implications of its study are. I get that. But, you know, again, maybe it's just the romantic in me. But at the end of the day, uh, those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. And we've had numerous studies in the past, including the so-called longest systematic study of, of unidentified aerial phenomena. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Project Blue Book, carried out by the U.S. Air Force. And yet, many of those involved, including the science advisor to the Air Force at the time, J. Allen Hynek, they said, you know, Blue Book was not a scientific study at all. If anything, at best, it was just a public relations exercise. And yet, there's still some very valuable data that can be gleaned from looking at it, if anyone would care to look. 
I actually uh, very frequently revisit the blue book data and, uh, and and look at that and try to extrapolate things from it. But, you know, as far as, you know, the actual talk, no, it's not leprechauns. For the first time publicly, I'll reveal it's not leprechauns. Um, I was, looking forward, to this I was looking forward to leprechauns. Adam, now I, you got me. Now, yeah, no, man, I hate to I hate to break your heart, but again, because this wouldn't be the first time. But yes, indeed, you know the uh, the leprechauns thing is going to have to take second show because you know the the pertinence of this dialogue, um, understanding not just the presence of UAP and what I feel is the reality of that, but also understanding. Um, the historical context in which it can be placed. That's w- what I'll be discussing. And, uh, you know, it's a fun conversation because, you know, when you look back into the, the the files, not only of Blue Book, but of civilian researchers, you know, civilian organizations, APRO, the Center for UFO Studies, um, NICAP, there are these trends, you know, we're studying objects. We only want to look at the objects. When reports of occupants, humanoids, anything like that starts to show up initially, you know, uh, civilian researchers were very, very careful about getting into that. Oh, God, we don't want to hear about what the occupants might look like because we're going to, everybody's going to think that we're crazy for studying UFOs, <laughs> right? We're kind of back to that point again. Nobody wants to talk about occupants. Nobody wants to talk about landing cases. Nobody wants to talk about, dare I say, and this is a real dirty word, abductions. Um, I think you have to always be very careful in how you approach this subject. But you know, all bets are off if we're really dealing with what many suppose this is. And I'm not going to call it extraterrestrial. I'll actually use a preferential term for myself, alien, which does not mean, by the way, biological extraterrestrial being or entity. I mean, alien, I mean that simply in the most literal sense, possibly non-human intelligent, uh, you know, of of unknown source, you know, some sort of non-human intelligence, rather. So, uh, if indeed we're dealing with some sort of exotic technology in the instances where some some UAP um, could could represent that again, you know, to Olaf's point, and this is something I mean, it's it's something that we are both fascinated with. Obviously, the very not only the possibility but the almost undeniable probability that a lot of these things are ours. Uh, and I'll come back to that point in just a moment as well. But again, if we're looking at the possibility that even a small minority or anything that are more exotic in origin, this is the greatest discovery of all time. This this may have implications not only in terms of our um, understanding of, for instance, physics and, and applications in physics like propulsion, but this may also have a, a very expansive um, potential in terms of the way that uh, our development and our understanding of, of questions like consciousness, um, you know, will, will proceed and will hopefully, um, you know, expand with time. I mean, again, let's say that we've met a more intelligent, more sophisticated, more capable um, civilization intelligence, again, fill in the blank, that has been around or has more seat time than us, and we can learn from them. I mean, that would be the best case scenario, right? Then again, on the other side of things, I mean, if they're a danger to us for some reason and they haven't indicated that threat yet, but nonetheless, there is some sort of an imminent threat awaiting us, it's probably incumbent upon us for survival reasons to understand what the implications are. Now, based on a reading of the data, even though it's a very limited understanding that we have based on that data, there doesn't seem to be any kind of overt indication of a threat um, implied by UAP, which is the fortunate news. But we still really should be trying to learn about this and understand what this phenomenon may represent. I mentioned I would come back really quickly also, though, to the idea that 
you know, again, this really dovetailing with Olaf's uh, area of focus, which is, you know, secret space programs, secret aerospace developments and things. If you go, and this is one reason I really think that it's important to go back and look at the blue book files. Um, many would think, well, you know, if the Pentagon with the all domain anomaly uh, resolution office, formerly known as the <laughs> AIMSOG, even though AIMSOG is not really a very good way to try and pronounce the, uh, the, they tried to make it into an acronym, but the, um, uh, you know, whatever iteration of the DOD's UAP investigative component, you know, that you want to name. And before that, the UAPTF, you know, and so on and so on. Uh, the presumption that, well, they need to try and understand these things because if there is some sort of exotic technology, they need to know what it's all about. I mean, it's not quite so simple as that. Go back to the blue book years and you look at like, for instance, in the very first chapter, I think of uh, Edward Ruppelt's, the report on unidentified flying objects. He describes what he calls a good UFO report, and it's basically describing what sounds like a swept wing, modern kind of stealth aircraft that was observed by a you know pilot at fairly close range. And this thing kind of flies alongside him, banks, turns and goes. They're describing it as a UFO at that time, a, a, a term of Ruppelt's own creation, um, because he thought that uh, that was intentionally more ambiguous than flying saucer. Not all these things, quite obviously, as this description presents us with, uh, it, the, the reality is they're not all flying saucers. Um, later in the uh, Blue Book, uh, well, these actually even preceding Blue Book, what Ruppelt was describing in parts of his report on unidentified flying objects, keep in mind he was the first director of Project Blue Book. So he was only in there for a couple of years, but he actually took over right there at the tail end of what was still called Project Grudge, technically. Um, and as it was being uh, rebranded first as the new Project Grudge and Ruppelt was asked to take over, there was an incident that occurred out there over Long Beach, California, where there was an object that was just kind of doing these long, wide orbits over Long Beach. They sent a few uh, F-84s up there to try and intercept this aircraft. And this, whatever this aircraft was, was capable of baiting them. And it wasn't moving quickly. It was flying slowly. And it was just kind of sweeping in these big circles. Every time an F-84 would even began to close in and, and come close to it. it would just very, they said almost just nonchalantly just rise in altitude, just high enough that, you know, they couldn't reach it. These aircraft at that time in that era, this would have been about 1951. They weren't capable of flying up to this level that this aircraft, this altitude, this aircraft was flying, but they were able to get close enough to get a good look at it. And rather than being a flying saucer um, of all the different uh, jet interceptors that were scrambled, one did say it looked sort of discoid. Every single one of the other pilots said it just looked like a silver um, aircraft, but with an extremely almost V-shaped sort of swept wing appearance. Now, again, by today's standards, that doesn't sound as anomalous as it would have to you know F-84 pilots in 1951. But we could go on down the list. I, again, I think that same year, or actually maybe the next year, 1952, uh, right coinciding with the sightings that were happening down there around Lubbock, Texas, we had an instance where there was an object uh, that was detected on radar flying uh, north by northwest, I believe, uh, traveling somewhere in the neighborhood of 900 miles per hour. Um, and in Washington state, there was a ground-based radar station that initiated an IFF query. Okay. IFF meaning identification, friend, or foe. And this is a really interesting little sub-discipline within UAP studies that I'm looking into and I'm very interested in. Some of my colleagues at the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies are also interested in. But they initiate an IFF query and ping this anomalous aircraft flying at tremendous speed for its day. Uh, and, it, and they receive a response to the IFF 
uh, transponder query in the affirmative, i.e. that this aircraft identifies itself as a friendly uh, using what, again, this wasn't stated in the Blue Book files at the time. And the reason why is because it was classified information. There was an uh, AN unit um, IFF transponder that it was classified, but later that information came out. Uh, Brad Sparks and his Blue Book unknowns catalog, and he's expanded that. Blue Book said there were like 700 some unknowns in their catalog. Brad Sparks, excellent researcher, has gone through and he's found that there were actually a lot more unknowns than Blue Book admitted, but Blue Book was, was apt to put explanations on a lot of these reports that, you know, in fact, there hadn't been explanations. Um, but this object, whatever it was back in 19, you know, 51, 52 was able to indicate, Hey, I'm one of yours. So leave me alone. Brad Sparks, by the way, is probably, uh, you know, one of his best known cases he's investigated is the RB 47 incident where again, a seemingly very anomalous kind of diffuse light, you know, glowing light that was doing all kinds of strange aerial maneuvers over an aircraft, a, a, a air force aircraft, I believe it was a transport craft at that, uh, in that instance, this object also responded in the affirmative to IFF queries. Now, Larry Hancock at SCU and I were having a conversation about this. And again, one could interpret this a couple of ways. Either these are some sort of aircraft of, you know, earthly provenance and they may be of us design. And that would explain, explain why they were capable of responding to IFF queries over encrypted communications channels. Um, but the other alternative is that, uh, and even Brad Sparks has proposed this, could they be a, a information system or a technology, you know, on board these phenomena, craft, objects, whatever, that is able to mimic that? They can decrypt an encrypted communications trans, uh, a transmission. They can decrypt that. They can respond in the affirmative and emulate that technology. Um I will add this also, you know, about the RF thing that Olaf was pointing out. Um, you know, one reason it's, and this is just speculation. I actually agree with Olaf that that's a very good indication that a lot of these technologies are probably earthly. But if I were to go to a remote island and communicate with, you know, indigenous inhabitants that had never had, you know, communications with, you know, um, civilization, you know, and that they 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 used a communication system that was very primitive that involved, for instance, uh, rocks and, and uh, you know, and, and, and placing curious little colored frogs that they collected off of a tree into circles on the ground. All right. Really, really strange and esoteric for us. But if we learned that, if we learned their method of communication, we could communicate with them, right? So we bring our crypto uh, cryptographers in and we try to decipher uh, how to draw the circles on the ground, where to place the frogs within the circles and where to place the stones to communicate a message, right? And we, we crack that code. We're able to communicate with them. The point is, you know, if we were trying to communicate with someone who was less technologically equipped than we were, we might use their technology to do so. So again, you know, in response to the point you raise, Olaf, about uh, the RFs, you know, and this being speculative, but I mean, maybe they would be lowering themselves to using RF so that they could, in, you know, perhaps intercept our communication systems, which may, which may be child's play for any prospective advanced intelligence, presuming that's what some of these things are. Uh, and that would very easily give them an advantage over us because, you know, decrypting our encrypted communication systems probably wouldn't be very difficult. Now, again, I actually follow Olaf's logic and think that the, the most likely, the most parsimonious explanation here is probably, those are probably earth technologies. But if we were to speculate, I mean, there might be a reason why they would use RFs. And so again, looking at all these things uh, in some totality is why I think it is important. These are all 
the examples I've given you are going back to the 1950s. And throughout the decades, I guarantee you there are much better examples that are worthy of analysis that I think would be used to inte- uh, useful to intelligence officials in terms of gauging the potentials of this phenomena, what its possible intentions are, what its capabilities are technologically and otherwise, what attempts at communication may have been made or what may be inferred from what limited attempts or, you know, as close as we have come to communication with these phenomena, uh, what these things might represent. And then going forward, how to try and plan uh, a, a, a strategy in terms of further research, study, and also just gauging potentials, both existential and also, you know, maybe more beneficial going forward. And so that's a lot of what I'm going to be talking about during this lecture in a nutshell, really is trying to gauge the past, present, and future potentials with relation to UAP. Awesome. All you serious UFO people out there, uh, Micah Hanks is going to bring it at Strange Reality, so you'll definitely get your fix of UFOs from him. I don't know. Olaf, he wants to get in there, though. That's only fair, though. My, my colleague here. <laughs> so one, one of the things that I, I don't remember if we discussed it or not, but in your discussion of, of the device having the capability to decrypt and encrypt, there was a press release released about a year ago from Ames. I think it was Ames research um or maybe it was moffat i forget they, they're not the same but they're the same well <clears throat> there was a cryptography researcher there that for about 45 minutes pr- published a press release that said that she cracked a 4096 bit key in under four minutes using a quantum computer so you might want to go track that down but they re-released it and sanitized it but apparently she cracked a 4000 bit key in in under four minutes so, in other words, the 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 query was initiated by a quantum computer, and she cracked it. Yeah. So she put she put the key she put the key onto a quantum computer, and then oh, used so, okay. the parallel processing potential of the quantum computer to break the key. Oh, okay. So she used the quantum computer. Yeah. And this is actually something I've talked about with people. You know, all of it may have come up with you and and I in our conversation at some point. If you know, we're in our infancy trying to nail down quantum computing it's not really to a point where it's i mean we're definitely making some headway but we are not to a point where we have fully functional you know applicable everyday quantum computing but presuming that someone or you know some intelligence was just a a decade ahead of us in likelihood but we will have those kind of capabilities i would guess in the next decade if you've got that if you've got that accessible and miniaturized and capable of transporting with you it would take it would take no time to decrypt probably our most complicated communication systems with that kind of technology to your point exactly yeah and that's precisely what i'm talking about in the sense that i mean you know you know this is frustrating for instance when people talk about like space travel you know i saw one of our astronauts the other day saying that uh if aliens had ever come to Earth, we would know it. And here's how we would know it. Because they would have blown half our planet off with the, the thrust that would have had to have been generated to get the rocket that they would have needed to get back to Alpha Centauri off this planet. And so we know they haven't been here. And I'm like, well, yeah, but that's all presuming that they're still using Stone Age, by comparison, rocket propulsion, right? Now, keep in mind, Jack Parsons, true innovator in that field, self-taught also. And also, like, Ordo Templi Orientis, right? Uh, you know, out there in California, he was a, a serious occultist who would invoke the god Pan during these launches right out there at JPL. But 
but this guy was a self-taught rocket propulsion scientist, and he got us off the ground with rocket propulsion the way he did by thinking outside the box. You know, thinking outside the box is what's always moved us forward. And thinking that, well, you know, they're going to have to have a mighty damn big rocket to get to Earth. And when they take off, there won't be no Earth left. That's just, I don't think that's the kind of out of the box thinking that got us off the ground in the first place, right? And something tells me that if they were intelligent and capable of getting all this distance to planet Earth, right, they probably didn't use rockets to get here in the first place. In fact, they'd probably be smart enough not to ever come here knowing how we are and how we think. And yet, so don't, maybe they did. Don't forget, though, Ben Rich, you know, at that Caltech alumni dinner, I always bring this up. He yeah. said, not, mm-hmm. only, not only do I have the technology to take ETM, I have the contract. So, yeah, and I exactly. think that's something very important. Is that, the, is that the skunk, skunk Works guy that you're talking mm-hmm. about? Head, head, head of the Skunk Works. Head yeah. of the Skunk Works. Yeah, I remember yeah. seeing that. I remember, him yeah. say, I remember him saying that. Jan, and I don't Jan, doubt. I mean, again, my read on those old, those early blue book cases that seem to involve what are obviously swept wing aircraft designs that would have seemed highly esoteric for that era. But for today's standards, we'd be like, oh, it sounds kind of like a B2 spirit or, you know, something like that. I think there, there must be on some level evidence of you know, secret innovations that were underway and yet that the you know blue book investigators right well, the, who weren't exactly right yeah, yeah. they weren't exactly i'm sorry go ahead you okay well i was gonna say the a12 i mean the the cia during the a12 program with Lockheed, mm-hmm. they you know they they uh fostered the idea that the a12 was a ufo and they painted it silver and silver things streaking across the sky they used to tell them that oh yeah that's a ufo and you know they had the whole i forget the name of the program but where they had the infiltrators into the into the journalists Mm -hmm. and so they would release stories through them about it being a ufo yeah and yeah i looked up the a12 in fact after our last conversation olaf you know um and a-12, U-2, you know, a lot of these aircraft, I mean, did they look like UFOs with a saucer-shaped or anything? No, of course not. But what advantage they had was that they were flying at a higher altitude than other aircraft in that era, in an era or in an area of the sky that gave them very different flight characteristics in terms of their appearance than other objects. Examples, uh, depending on the flight, you know, the, or I'm sorry, the altitude, uh, you know, may also indicate, you know, what the appearance of the contrail will be. Uh, you could be flying at based on a ground-based vantage at what a ground-based observer might perceive as night or even, you know, twilight or even night. But at that altitude, you may still be capable of of reflecting light from across the horizon from the sun as it's setting. And that often gave the appearance of very bright, especially in the case of the A-12, when you have a reflective exterior as opposed to the U-2, where they later began using the more stealth kind of paint jobs and everything and any reflective coating. Again, if you have a very highly brightly reflective exterior on an aircraft like that, flying at that altitude, you're going to reflect sunlight and you're going to be bright as hell right there around twilight, kind of like satellites are. If you're out, if you want to see satellites, that's always a good time after the sun goes down just over the horizon and everything, and it's just starting to get dark. Um, And they use that to their advantage. They did in the CIA, even in recent days, you guys have probably seen on their Twitter account, they've gone out there and said, you know, remember all those UFOs people were seeing back in the fifties and sixties? Yeah, that was us. And I'm thinking, yeah, but in those instances where people have said that there were actually, you know, saucer-shaped craft with an actual visible dome that came down silently, hovered, produced a purple light, and then landed on the ground, uh, I'm not sure that that sounds 
I mean, it could be a U2, I guess, but <laughs> no, I don't think so. You know, but undeniably, some of those UFO reports from that era certainly were uh, stealth aircraft. Absolutely were. The thing about the rocket, the uh, the the astronaut saying that they would need a massive rocket kind of reminds me a little bit of the Zachariah Sitchin stuff where he was so <laughs> adamant that that this advanced culture that in the past the Anunnaki that they used rockets and that like some ancient <laughs> ziggurat or something was like where they though the Sinai the Sinai was where they launched the rockets and that yeah it kind of reminds well, me of that a little bit Von Daniken and Chariots of the Gods went down that path too with the Nazca lines. Yeah. 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 I, it, well, yeah. And that's even, that was even worse. They're even, right? small, because, they're even smaller. He said, he said those were, he said those were runways. Runways. Yeah. yeah. It's right. like, a t- right. like a hundred foot long runway. Good luck with that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? No, the, but, what's funny is a lot of those ideas, they, they were very forward thinking for their time. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as down as people are on Von Daniken these days. Oh, no. I, I like Von Daniken. I actually well, enjoy his stuff. Sure. Yeah. You know, I've met Von Daniken a couple of times. We've had some great conversations, but you know, people in the, in, 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 especially the sciences these days, they have you know, no love lost for Von Daniken, but I often meet people at events and, you know, who will say that, you know, back in, well, when was the book published? 68? Was it 1968? I think. Uh, well, yeah. Sometime yeah. around there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I often run into people who, you know, they will say, you know, that was required reading for a class I was in in college at that time. And you got to keep in mind, again, in that era, initially the idea was considered extremely thought provoking. Uh, but you got to look at where we were as, as, you know, team civilization. I mean, we were just really kind of beginning to enter space and to understand our place in the cosmos. And, um, I love to, to point out, although I think that there are certain caveats that should be made, but I mean, yeah, Carl Sagan did propose that idea that we should look in archaeological, uh, you know, data. We should look through archaeological evidence for possible um, evidence of visitation to Earth. Is it is it really such a crazy idea? You know, I don't consider myself even an ancient astronaut proponent per se, but is it such a crazy idea that at some time in the ancient past Earth was visited? You know, I remember we were speaking with a, a, a super skeptic astronomer on a radio program that I was producing back in my days in terrestrial radio. And I remember we asked this guy, you know, do you think that Earth has ever been visited? And he gave a very interesting response. He said, yeah, I think it almost inevitably happened. But I mean, that couldn't have that couldn't be happening right now. UFOs have nothing to do with it. If we were visited, it would have been in the ancient past. And I'm like, wow, that that's strangely von Daniken-esque for a skeptic astronomer to be saying. But on further consideration, what he was actually saying was, if you look at the billions of years the Earth has existed, and if we take into consideration the notion that the universe is expanding, right? And not only expanding, but that ever expansion of the universe is also occurring at a greater and greater accelerated rate over time, which is, by the way, very mysterious. That's the equivalent of me taking a softball and throwing it up into the air, and it just keeps flying straight up instead of coming back down, right? And that's why we have to institute ideas like dark energy to try and account for these anomalous, expansive, and accelerative expansions of the universe. But all that said, um, you know, back billions of years ago, earlier in Earth's history, um, 
if we were to consider the expansion rate of our universe, I mean, the distances between stars and star systems would have been much lesser back then. Um, and so an interesting argument that some astronomers have made is that, you know, even using more rudimentary forms of space travel, it would have been more feasible to traverse some of those distances longer ago. And given the probability that an intelligent civilization rose into existence, you know, within a window of a few million years on one of those planets long ago, and they began exploring, maybe they did come to Earth. But, you know, when when Christopher Columbus made his way across the Atlantic Ocean, he came on his way back and he stopped. On, it was either on Corvu or one of the islands there on the Azores, and he left no evidence. You know, he and his, his crew, there's no evidence left of Columbus's stopover. But we know from his journals that they'd stopped there in the Azores. My point would be, I mean, that long ago, if ever an intelligent civilization visited Earth, the likelihood that we would find direct evidence of their roadside picnic, to, uh, to quote the uh, Strugatsky brothers, it's almost nil. But many say it's not impossible either that we have been visited and that that may have just ha happened well so, so far in advance of the historic period. That, I mean, there's never a hope that we'd find evidence of it, but it's not impossible. And in fact, it may not even be unlikely. Well, I think it, it, there's a funny corollary to that. Back when I was in anthropology school, you know, when you go to physical anthropologists, <clears throat> anthropology, cultural, I mean, any anthropologist, really, when you go to them and you talk about things like, like genetic manipulation or, you know, maybe there was a group of people that, like. They got him. Yeah, they got him again. Discharged. <laughs> Just, just to say that, um, uh, yeah, he he was slowly fading into the darkness. Anyway, there, <laughs> but I, I, I do want to say that one of the I, I don't buy the ancient astronaut stuff. You know, I, I had my my kick with that when I was younger, but like, um, but one of the ones that was interesting, it's pretty compelling, is the whole uh, serious mystery, Robert Temple book. That's one that's pretty compelling to me. Oh, sure. But but that could have... Uh, I prefer to believe that some of this stuff is ultra-terrestrial, not necessarily yeah. extraterrestrial. But when you look sense. at it from that perspective, it's like, you know, we've probably always been visited and are continuing to be visited. Yeah. That's what my money's on is ultra-terrestrials. And that stuff might have really impacted... And created human civilization just because things weren't physically here on spaceships necessarily. Like, still, this could have been a lot of what has inspired what we know of as civilization. Well, this is also the butterfly effect, right? That you go back and you step, you know, you you kill a butterfly, and you know, the next thing you know, you develop the nuclear bomb in you know nineteen twenty eight instead of you know in the thirties. So. The idea that an ultra terrestrial, because that implies it could be a time traveler, it could be an alien, it could be whatever. The idea that they come back in some distant past when our ancestors were still tree shrews, you know, it, that's probably far more likely, I would think. Yeah. The shadow man. I was just going to say, speaking of that butterfly effect, though, I mean, I'm worried now about the uh, DART mission. Gosh, I mean, what if. What if inadvertently, you know, we smack into that asteroid and it knocks a little asteroid and then that one like a bowling pin? Hits <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that too. I, I actually watched it. <laughs> I watched like it live. <laughs> 20 years from now, hell, <laughs> look what we did. 
Actually, you know, I, I did hear a compelling theory about about the uh, the Mandela effect, that about the timing when these things started to happen, they were carrying out a series of experiments at the Linear Accelerator in Chicago. So mm-hmm. there, there is there is some correlative evidence that the Mandela effect is actually was actually caused by them messing around with the linear accelerator. When, when what started happening? Like the people like, started reporting it. Okay, so yeah. like the Berenstain Bears, right? And that Mandela dying in prison, and yeah. Oh, okay. And the 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 uh, the movie, the basketball movie. The basketball movie. Yeah, I forget. It's like Space Jam. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And Shazam. Right, right. Motorcycles. But yeah, about the time people actually started to report (laughs) that, apparently there was an experiment just before it. I I forget the name of the uh, the lab in Chicago, but it's there's a linear accelerator there. And they were actually carrying out a series of experiments. So they like turned it on and then all of a sudden like the A and the E were switched in Berenstain? Well, what it, what it is is that they turned it on and somehow caused a fork in the multiverse and there was some kind of overlap or we transitioned from one consciousness, our consciousness transitioned from one multi part of the multiverse to another. Because, you know, there are a lot of people, depending on your age, the, the Mandela effect hits you in different ways. Like I'm old, so you know I remember all that stuff. I mean, I'd swear to that's I'd swear true. on all all that's holy. You know that the Bernstein Bears was spelled that way, or you know I I remember like you know the one about the Kool Aid Man. I think I, I remember all that stuff. And hey, it's, Ro- Robert Loja died twice for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm I'm not kidding. Like he died twice for me. Yeah, I know. And he's not the only one. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people like that. Well, I don't know. I think I'm the only person that remembers hearing that Robert Loja died before he died. <laughs> I seem to remember that. Oh, so you actually do remember Robert Loja so. dying twice? I believe so, yeah. We found another we, one. We must be in the same multiverse, Ola. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think, you know, at least for me, I attribute a lot of it to age, right? That depending on what what age band you're in, you're going to remember certain things more than others. Cause I mean, I, I grew up reading the Bernstein bears and you know, a lot of people now, you know, that have grown up in the last 20, 20 years or 30 years, they don't remember that. Well, you know, 40, 40 years ago when I was seven, you know, it was a big deal, you know? So I, I do remember a lot of that stuff. Yeah. That one I have no, like, I, I don't, I don't even know. I, I, the, there is the weird one with the uh, the James Bond movie with the uh, Jaws, the character. What's that one? That's the one where, so like, you you remember Jaws, right? The the character in that he was yeah, like the assassin with like the Moonraker, metal, like the metal teeth. I guess it was Moonraker. He it was, was in Moonraker. a couple. Well, he was in, in two of them. Yeah. yeah, he was in two. Well, so there's Richard like Kiel. This, Richard Kill, yeah. So like there's this thing where like he falls out of a helicopter or an airplane or something and he right. lands in like this amusement park or something like that. Right. And all of a sudden there's like this girl and yeah, like she with smiles pigtails. with pigtails. And she has braces. She, she has braces, she smiles at him. Right. And he smiles back. 
and with his his teeth full of metal. So like that's right. the joke is that they both have a te- teeth full of metal and like you know they can get along, right? Right. And but but now but when people look back on it now, it's like her braces have been edited out. So like the scene and the joke just doesn't work anymore. Oh, they edited them out. Yeah, they well, were some, the ones. Something, something happened. I mean, because or, or they, just, they were in the or just people remember it because he had the mouth. Full no, of no, metal. she had no, she had braces. In fact, it became That's an issue. Joke. That's the right, joke, right? And and it was yeah. an issue when they were on the space station. They were the lone survivors of the space station. They got the two of them got into like an escape pod as the space station was breaking up. No, I remember it quite well. I like okay. I'll have to watch. I'll have to watch Moonraker again. Oh, I'm it's gonna. Been I'm gonna watch several it. years. But like, yeah, there's that. There's those little things, and I, I wonder if stuff has been kind of digitally altered for whatever reason. Well, I know. I know when I was a kid, at, and I worked at Blockbuster. That tells you how old I am. When I worked at Blockbuster, I worked at Blockbuster too. A lot. I, I, <laughs> okay. Well, they we edited the movies. <laughs> In the back with razor blades, and they what? they would send us the, they would send us the VHS tapes, and they would give us documentation on where to where to cut it, and so they sanitized like some of the movies. Did oh the Smithsonian God. come in and, and take all the <laughs> VHS? We actually we actually had a had a skeleton, an eight foot tall skeleton, yeah. in Concord, California, that the Smithsonian came and picked up in like 1912 and they lost it so wait a minute so they would have the clerks the like normal store clerks they wouldn't do that at like no corporate hq no no okay they're too cheap (laughs) they'd rather have me they'd rather have us doing it at four four twenty five an hour (laughs) because we do a better job than having it professionally done (laughs) crazy and then also, like, when our manager, like, if he would get a complaint, like, let's say that he, he got a he got a Pedro Almodovar movie or, you know, God help us, he, he watched something by, uh, oh, what's his name? The, uh, the experimental filmmaker from South America. Um, anyway, you know, God help us if, if somebody rented one of those, you know, then he would go in the back and, and just based on the complaint, he would edit all the copies himself. It was yeah, it was horrible. As a film fan, it was terrible. <clears throat> so people would complain Tudorowski. about the mo- people Tudorowski. would complain oh, about no. the movies. <laughs> yes, and they would get this complaint, and then they would yeah. go back there and they would edit the <laughs> the videotapes. Yeah, and if you take something like Tudorowski, it'd be pretty much like ninety nine point five percent of the movie. <laughs> But I guess they, never, they must have never did that with the big releases, though, because no, you would no, have like a couldn't. whole wall of just Jerry Maguire. So no, like no, how? They okay, they had the sanitize. So you know, it may be an R movie, but you can actually buy a edited version. They would, if they had an R movie, they would get the one that was like edited for television, and that's actually what you would rent from blockbusters it's already rated this R, is a real what? fucking conspiracy right here my mind is being blown right now this must have just been a california thing well i don't I know don't, you think I it wouldn't a, be a california I worked thing a plus, blockbuster for a free. little while and like like adam we're gonna know, need you to I stay don't... a little bit after tonight no it's true they had a little need you to splice this splice this movie together 
what was better is we used to, you know, because they, they didn't give you an actual name tag. So we used to go on the back of the label maker and make our own name tags. And so when the managers weren't there, we would change all of our names. So in case anybody complained about it. So you talk oh, about Mandela effect. Like <laughs> we, we were, we were editing the movies. We're changing our names. <laughs> you, guys, <laughs> well, you, know, you know, we were, we were all like, you know, 18, okay. 19 years old. So, so, so was it the particle accelerator Chicago or was it just blockbuster? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. it could, it could have just been blockbuster. I mean, there is one left. So maybe it's, maybe that one is some kind of like a tele telepathic anchor. I don't know. It's holding reality together. We can't lose it. Yeah. The single blockbuster. Ben Isn't Oregon. it an Airbnb now or something? No. No, no, no. It's an actual blockbuster. It's in Bend, Oregon. You can rent it and have sleepover parties there. Ah, see? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it is a block. I swear to God, I went inside. It's a, it's a blockbuster. My, 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 my nightmares came, came manifest again. It was funny. My question to you, though, Micah, is that uh, are leprechauns uh, piloting the UFOs? Well, you'll have to attend the fourth annual Strange Realities 2022 to find That's out. It. That's it. That's it. <laughs> All right. Well, Del- Delaney, did you want to add to the blockbuster conspiracy? Is there? Am I? I are you saying blockbuster? Blockbuster. Yes. I'm just joking. Yeah. Blockbuster. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it was a. And you'd actually pay. See, he can't convey so oh, much. Oh, no! <laughs> yeah. Olaf, you got your back. Sad time in the world. Olaf. All right, guys. This has been Olaf, uh, this is a sad time. There this he is. Been- I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, yeah, here. yes. We got you now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're okay, a disembodied I'm voice I'm, now. I'm we back can't in. hear you, yes. I, I'm... <laughs> I, I'm like Captain Kirk, like going, you know, the phaser or the the teleporter accident, like I'm fading in and fading out. Well, <laughs> let's start with you, Olaf. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell people where, uh, when they obviously actually for all you guys, Olaf, you are twelve twenty to one twenty. That is Central Time on Sunday, the the sixteenth. Okay. Correct. And I will be there. Uh, you'll be the, you will actually be the last uh, person to give a presentation live at the conference or like at SAR oh, wow. rather. And Delaney, you are nine forty to ten forty Central Time. The reason I'm saying Central Time is going to have a lot of people watching this online, so you guys uh, calculate where your time zone is. And Micah, you will be given a remote presentation uh, that is 3.50 to 4.50 Central Time on Sunday evening. All the remote uh, presentations are on Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Leprechauns. Leprechauns, yes. Yes, that's 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 uh, that's hopefully going to be the twist of the conversation of the uh, presentation. All right. Let's start with Delaney, where people he is he is he's computerized now i can hear i can hear r2d2 again olaf olaf this is done can you, can you hear me yes can you yes. hear me yes my battery's dead yes. okay i was gonna say real quick about leprechauns 
it goes yeah. it goes back to the top that they demand. So the idea that that there are, <laughs> are quote unquote leprechauns flying UFOs potentially, yes. it's not as funny as you would think. If well, you do some yeah. research on the top of day Danan, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's got a point. He's got a point. Right throw, throw Walter that in. Bosley. We'll, we'll see what Walter thinks about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He may be watching. You never know. But uh, <laughs> I've actually, talked to Walter Olaf, about it. I was going to say, you put, you, put Olaf, you put Olaf and Walter Bosley and I in a room together and things, and throw Adam Go Rightly in there just for fun. It could get really dangerous. Delaney, just, just you know, be safe. Yeah, exactly. I, I take coverage. You have. I to. went to con. Please. I went to contact in the desert, and I actually, you know, I, I split a room with Walter, and you can picture me and Walter sitting in this room, you know, drinking bourbon, trying to figure this stuff out. <laughs> I can't imagine that. It's, it's in my head right now. I can. I can already was, visualize this. Walter's. Walter's a great guy. I love Walter. <laughs> oh yeah, he's one of the great right. best. O- Olaf, before you fade into nothingness, uh, please tell people where they can find you. Oh, at this point, probably mostly on Instagram, Paranoia Mags. You can see my misadventures through time and space. Occasionally, I bake. Okay. Good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, and Delaney, where can people find you and your your internet presence? Yeah, I'm a very secretive woman. Don't contact me. Um, but I'm also the editor in chief for Kentucky Folklife Digital Magazine. You can find that at yes. uh, kyfolklifemag.org. So. Yes. Yeah. All right, and Mr. Hanks, Micah. Oh. Uh, actually, yeah. yeah, something else Delaney and I must have in common. I'm editor-in-chief of the debrief.org, uh, where we mostly cover science and technology, but also uh, updates with regard to UAP, uh, a mutual subject of interest to all of us, I think. Uh, but you can also find my stuff at micahanks.com and the podcast that I produce each week. The Micah Hanks program uh, is micahanks.com forward slash podcast. Um, I also... <laughs> No joke, in this modern digital age, I like to keep a low profile. Um, I can sympathize with that sentiment. But, I mean, I am online. Um, you can find me on Instagram, and you can find me on Twitter. Uh, again, just look for my name. Not hard to find. I put it all here for everybody so that you can find it. So, All right. Excellent. And, guys, uh, just we, me and Sergio, we are Conspiranormal, and we are Strange Realities. Uh 2022 the conference coming up so you know get those tickets if you are those. coming in person uh you know you want to get your arrangements together as soon as possible because uh it's sometimes hard to acquire lodging here at this entertainment capital of nashville tennessee um but also everything uh if you get uh online tickets as soon as possible too that's just going to help us plan and gauge things and prepare um we're going to Really need some help with that for uh, the online audience being able to participate in the workshops and things like that. So everybody, please get your tickets as soon as possible. It'll help everything function a lot smoother. And if you are in Nashville, Tennessee, or the Inverons thereof, we do have single-day rates of $30 a day. Those are actually on the Eventbrite page. And you can find all the tickets at strangerealitiesconference.com. Uh, there is a link there that will take you straight to Eventbrite and you can buy the tickets from there. And we hope to see you there at the conference or online. All right. Next week uh, will be the last show before 
the conference itself, and we will have Soraya Askath, Christopher Ernst, Rin Collier, Timothy Renner, and hopefully Recluse will finally make a, an appearance as well. But he is a recluse, so you never know. So, all right, guys. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we will talk to you next week about the Strange Realities Conference on Conspiracy Normal. <laughs> www.strangerealitiesconference.com. Take it easy, guys. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.